Hello, gardeners, farmers, compost enthusiasts, and growers. Welcome to The Healthy Garden, the show where soil is important and growing a healthier world is job one. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. So Romeo, would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes? Without that title, Romeo doff thy name. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. One of the classic lines from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Act 2, Scene 2, when Juliet Capulet is speaking to herself on her balcony. She is overheard by Romeo Montague, the young man who is in love with her. What Juliet is saying to herself is that even if a rose had a different name, it would still have the wonderful scent that we all associate with roses. The context for this quote, which most of us know, is that the two leading families of the city of Verona, the Montagues and the Capulets, are involved in a long-standing and deep family feud. The families do not associate with one another and avoid each other at all cost. But as it is in life, the younger generation is changing. Romeo and Juliet are not as concerned or engaged in the feud as the older members of the families. But still, romance or marriage between these two is out. Yet they do fall in love and marry. And in the end, there is no escape from the dramatic keg of dynamite, which makes this one of William Shakespeare's great tragedies. That's kind of my experience with rose gardening. A love, a marriage that might ultimately kill you, <laughs> or at the very least put you in some very difficult positions. But once bitten, as with love, you can't help it. I know when I met Norma, it was over. I was done. We don't choose who we love. Real love chooses us. And that has been my tale of roses, rose gardening, rose care, and transitioning to organic rose gardening. In fact, we were at the nursery yesterday, and what do we buy for the two glorious new pots that we are repurposing from the kindness of neighbors who set them out on the curb with a handwritten note proclaiming that they were free? We bought two beautiful, vibrant, pink, sweet spirit, grandiflora roses. Well, I guess who we love and we do what we must do. And since I was a boy, I have always loved roses in the garden. But I will say this. Today, in episode 49 of The Healthy Garden, Roses, Rose Care, and Organic Roses, we are going to tempt or attempt to tempt you with a new way to look at and care for the queens of the garden, Roses.
Hello there, Rosarians, romantics, and rose lovers. Do you know what my roses absolutely love? Farm-made organic compost from Number 2 Organics. That's what. They love a light, eighth-inch to a quarter-inch top dress in the spring and fall, with the occasional sixteenth of an inch in between seasons to add clean organic matter into the soil. It'll grow and build the microbial diversity beneath my roses like nothing else and give them all of the major and minor nutrients and trace minerals they need to thrive. A top dressing of number two organics farm-made organic compost is the best way to guarantee that your roses will flourish for years to come. You will never have more beautiful and fragrant blooms than if you grow your roses this way. Trust me, that's what I do. And trust number two organics. It's made in partnership with Malibu Compost, so you know it's good. Check out number two today at number2organics.com. I remember as a preteen, I was probably about 11, when my mom put me in charge of watering the rose garden in our backyard of our little hamlet called Pacific Palisades. It was a beautiful rose garden that was set in classic clay pots all over our backyard. There were containers of roses on the painted redwood deck, the flagstone landings and steps, and scattered all throughout the different garden rooms that landscape architect Sid Galper had created. There were probably 50 containers in all, and I was assigned the task of keeping them watered. This meant that I had to start to learn a little bit about roses and had to start to understand their watering needs and how that changed during the mild yet crafty Southern California seasons. This was when I fell in love with roses. Obviously, I'm not alone. Roses are still the world's favorite flower and are grown in every city, state, county, and country that the climate allows them to be grown in. Some say roses are 35 million years old and that there are over 30,000 varieties grown today. There are hybrid teas, floribundas, miniatures, dwarfs, climbers, ramblers, shrub roses, modern shrub roses, old-fashioned shrub roses, and English roses. Most of the roses today come from about 100 different species and hybrids. Roses were cultivated and grown in China as far back as 500 BC. Confucius said that they were grown in the imperial gardens of the Chao dynasty. Many of the cultivars that we grow today are hybrids from species that are native to China. In 600 BC, Sappho, a Greek poet, coined roses as the queen of flowers in his poem, Ode to the Rose. But it was the Romans who first elevated the rose to center stage. They truly fell hard as a culture for roses. They used rose petals while bathing. They used them to cover their floors and as confetti at their parties. Many of their perfumes and medicines came from roses. They even hung roses upside down to symbolize secrecy in a meeting. They were obsessed with roses. I'm not a Roman. I'm of Scottish descent, Macintosh clan. But I must admit, I too am a bit obsessed with roses. 
It is for that reason that I'm going to flash forward in our Rose history to a time that I believe is not shared or discussed often enough. We're going to Paris in the 17th century, mainly because I am very interested in history, especially history near the turn of the century in 1800. 1799 is where we'll start, a little over 20 years after the American War for Independence. In fact, we're setting the time machine November 9th, 1799, the day that the French Revolution ended during a coup and when Napoleon Bonaparte took over as the dictator and ultimately the emperor of France. Roses were high in demand, so high that the elites and the royals in France considered roses and rose water as legal tender, actually used as barter and for payments. I had no idea that when I was growing up tending a rose garden in modern America that I was rich, rose rich, flush with roses. Anyhow, I digress. As first counsel, Napoleon wanted a chateau. His wife, Josephine, had fallen in love with La Malmaison, a country house located seven miles outside of Paris. It had been built in the 1680s and was an elegant manor surrounded by a garden and working farm. Josephine first set eyes on La Malmaison in 1798 and knew this was the place for her and her dictator hubby. She saw amazing potential in the property to create a palatial estate and to create an extraordinary landscape and garden. She negotiated its purchase in April 1799 whilst Napoleon was trying to conquer Egypt. When he returned, Napoleon bought the estate and Malmaison became their country retreat. The estate was sold to Napoleon on April 21, 1799 for the sum of 325,000 francs. From 1800 to 1802, this small chateau became the seat of the French government and frequently played host to meetings of the ministers of the consulate. Josephine renovated, enlarged, and created the gardens of the imperial palace of Malmaison. Josephine was obsessed with her garden renovation. She collected plants from all over the globe and started acclimating them to her garden. Inspired by her home in Martinique, in the Eastern Caribbean, she imported American species of flowering shrubs such as magnolia into the garden. Their sweetly scented flowers reminded her of home. During her search for plants for the estate garden, Josephine and Napoleon paid for Nicholas Baudin's exploratory voyage to Australia, or New Holland as it was known then. Napoleon hoped that the voyage would create a new territory for, for France known as Terra Napoleon. When Francis Perone and Charles Alexander Lesseur published their discoveries in a magnificent atlas, Voyage de Découverte à Terre Australes in 1811, they wrote of plants and animals from the Pacific that they brought back to France, including black swans, which Josephine acclimated to Malmaison. In the end, Napoleon's ambitions to conquer Australia collapsed with the fall of the empire in 1815. In 1803, Josephine built a greenhouse at La Malmaison out of the most innovative iron and glass technology of the day. It was heated by three stoves and was larger than the existing hothouses at the Jardin des Plantes, the National Botanical Garden in Paris. 
By March of 1804, she had almost 2,000 plants, trees, and shrubs delivered to Malmaison, and that number of plants increased to thousands more during her ownership. Josephine guaranteed the fame of her garden through her patronage of artist Pierre-Joseph Redoux. Redoux illustrated several luxury folio volumes for Josephine, including Le Jardin de Malmaison, The Garden of Malmaison in 1803, and the description of the rare plants cultivated at Malmaison in 1813. Redoux documented his masterwork in a series of engravings dedicated to Josephine's namesake flower, Les Roses, in 1817 to 1824 in which he recorded almost 200 species of roses that were there grown in her garden. Many of Josephine's roses were cultivated in pots in her greenhouses and moved outside into the gardens during the spring and summer months. A note for travelers to France, she did not design the rose garden at Malmaison today. Josephine and Napoleon divorced in 1809. He gave her the property and all of its possessions. She died in May of 1814. Her son, Prince Eugene, inherited the property, but his widow sold Malmaison to the Swedish banker Jonas Hagerman in 1828. Josephine wrote of her garden, It makes me quite happy to see plants from abroad flourish in my garden. I hope that Malmaison soon will be a rich resource for all the departments. I am having innumerable trees and shrubs from the Southern Hemisphere and North America grow here. I should like every department in 10 years' time to possess a collection of valuable plants from my nurseries. Thanks to Josephine's collecting, several of the most appreciated flowers and shrubs that flourish in France today, such as the gardenia, hydrangea, eucalyptus, magnolia, grandiflora, geranium, hibiscus, and mimosa, were first acclimated at Malmaison. We'll get into the British and American influence on roses in future episodes of the podcast because there is a lot of great history to look at there as well. But for now, an unusual thanks to an empress. We'll have to do. Thanks, Rosa, a.k.a. Josephine. Thanks for keeping and collecting such a variety of plants, trees, shrubs, and flowers, especially roses, for all of us gardeners today. healthy gardeners. I remember two and a half years ago when we moved to a Southern California home that was backed up against a mountain. There was so much fog every morning and the home had roses lining a long driveway all the way up to the mountains. Some of them were tiny and some were leggy. None of them had been pruned and many leaves had black spot and powdery mildew from all the fog. The first thing we did was remove the black spotted leaves and made wells at their base that extended to their drip line. We then added one inch of Malibu Compost's Booze Blend Biodynamic Compost to the surface of the wells and watered it in. Every month thereafter, from spring to September, 
we gave the wells a compost drench with Malibu compost, compost tea for flowering plants and roses. Two years later, the roses are three to five times larger, have dark green beautiful leaves and tons of roses. We made sure we continued deadheading them throughout the season and in the early spring, we do a foliar tea spray to protect against powdery mildew in the intense fog. Go to MalibuCompost.com for your compost tea for flowering plants and roses today. Rose care is one of those funny things in gardening. To a lot of gardeners, it's a big mystery. Well, depends on who you got your information from. To me, no mystery. It all starts with good, finished, real organic compost. Everything in the garden should start with real, good, finished, clean organic compost. I build the soil in both my in-ground beds and containers with a half an inch to an inch of great compost to start out with. That's in the first year of transitioning to organic or when I'm growing new roses in ground or in containers for the first time. I titrate everything down or taper down then to about an eighth of an inch or less in the following years. If you compost your roses in ground or in containers regularly, then you are guaranteeing that your roses, which one HGTV expert calls heavy feeders, are going to get all of the major and minor nutrients and trace minerals that they need. They didn't say that. I said that. That same expert goes on to say that roses are heavy feeders. See, I told you. So feed them with a balanced fertilizer, huh? Or a fertilizer formulated for roses. Start in early spring and feed as recommended on the product label. Stop feeding six weeks before the first expected frost in your area. You guys, if you're new to this show then you're going to hear this from me all the time. Why? Why do we need to pay some chemical company good money for bad science? And for anybody else who's listened before, why do you guys who do listen to these alleged experts? They're talking nonsense. Okay? So granulated fertilizers, fertilizers, formulated for roses. Come on. You don't need any of that stuff, okay? It's all a bunch of nonsense. How about giving them what God intended, compost? So one of the things that bugs me about a lot of gardening world stuff is a lot of people that tell you stuff get paid to tell you stuff. I'm not getting paid to tell you anything. I'm just telling you the way it is. I'm not an expert. I'm an organic farmer. I'm a biological gardener. That's what I am, okay? Even the Farmer's Almanac, who I I love the Farmer's Almanac. You know, we all have looked at it. You know, they go south on their rose care. You know, they have a piece that they wrote about rose care. And here's what they have to say about feeding roses. Artificial liquid fertilizers tend to promote plant growth that is soft and tender. And that type of foliage can attract aphids and other pests. That's very true. So I agree. Instead, 
rely on compost and natural fertilizers to feed your plants before and throughout the, the blooming cycle. That's perfect. That's the truth. But then, I don't know why. I don't know how it happened. It's like, you know, like bad magic. But once a month, between April and July, you could apply a balanced, granular NYX fertilizer, a 510-5 or a 510-10. Sprinkle it around the drip line, not against the stem. See our fertilizer guide for more information. So why? Why would a great publication that has a big audience, like the Farmer's Almanac, tell you to use granular fertilizer? I don't know. Maybe somebody's getting paid. They do say a couple of other funny things. They talk about using Epsom salts. You know, the magnesium sulfide will encourage new growth. Yeah, so will compost. So forget Epsom salts. I've heard that a zillion times. Rose growers think it's some great trick. It's not. It's You don't need it, okay? And one thing that they did put in here in the Farmer's Almanac that I do think is kind of funny, banana peels are a good source of calcium, sulfur, magnesium, and phosphates. For my opinion, they're also delicious. Um, but they said, note, it will take longer for your roses to reap the benefits from bananas than it would with pure soil amendments. Here are the ways to serve them up. Okay, let's hear it. Number one. Let's hear it, Johnny. Number one, lay a strip of peel at the base of each bush. I can just see people doing this. This is classic. Okay, <laughs> number two, bury a black, mushy banana next to each bush. You guys are taking notes on this, right? Number three, chop up the peels, let them sit for two weeks in a sealed jar of water, and pour the mixture under each bush. Okay, I like that. It's kind of funny. I could see some people doing that. I'd rather just eat the bananas or put them in my smoothie or cut them up and put them on my, uh, you know, my uh, organic uh, uh, odios or whatever they're called. So, but you know what I would say? This piece out of the Farmer's Almanac works especially well for monkey roses or R. simia or Rosa simia, which in Latin means monkey rose. All right, I'm, guys, I'm kidding. There is no such thing as a monkey rose. I don't want to hear from my friends at the nursery that people that listen to the healthy garden came in and asked for monkey roses, okay? Eat your bananas and just relax. Oh, also, I did look up their fertilizer guide at the Almanac, and here's what it has to say about NPK fertilizer labels. Also, if you listen to the show, you know I'm not an NPK guy. They go on to say, every fertilizer label will give you information to its NPK content, which is the amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium the particular fertilizer blend has. This is expressed in a series of three numbers that give you the percentage of what each nutrient is by weight. So you'll see numbers like 5, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 6, 4. Oh my goodness, gotta go. Help me, I'm gonna run. Okay, so NPK, forget about it. So what they're telling you is a 100-pound bag of a 10, 10, 10 contains 10 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of phosphorus, and 10 pounds of potassium. The rest is filler. 
which gives the fertilizer bulk and makes it easier to spread. Do any of you guys out there think I use a 10-10-10 anything? No. If anything, maybe I take a 10-pound uh, dumbbell, you know, and do a couple of lifts, you know, with that to keep my uh, forearms looking fabulous. <laughs> One last piece on this fertilizer thing. Here's what a leading turf company, turf company, has to say about the fillers in their synthetic and natural fertilizers. Fillers are materials added to fertilizer products that provide one or more of the following benefits. Hmm, I don't think so. But they dilute or reduce the concentration of the nutrients in the product. That doesn't sound right. And they give you an example. They say if you wanted to apply straight urea, I never would, and they give you at 46 dash O dash O to one acre at three quarters of a pound of nitrogen per thousand square feet, you'd need to apply over one and a half pounds of urea per thousand square feet or 71 pounds per acre. Am I the only gardener that thinks this is a load of hooey? Like soil doesn't grow in pounds per acre, okay? It grows in microbial mineralization. So you're getting a lot of mineral growth with compost, and what you're getting with fertilizer is forced growth on plants, and the rest of the stuff and the fillers all get washed down in the aquifer. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. The other thing they talk about is dust suppression and to prevent caking, this is the other reason you need fillers, because potash, that's notoriously dusty. Yeah, straight urea is moderately dusty, and methylene urea, not too dusty at all. But since these are all mixed together, you need filler, okay? So make sure that you get a fertilizer if you're going to use fertilizer. Ask for the ones with extra filler. Tell them the guy on the Healthy Garden podcast said, I want my fertilizers, my synthetic and fake natural fertilizers with loaded with extra filler. Can I get the one with double filler? The other last thing they talk about is they'll adjust the soil pH. This takes me back to compost. Soil microbes in your native soil and good, clean, finished compost will naturally adjust your pH. Plus, they don't need dilution. They don't need a, 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 you don't need a ratio of how much compost to put down. All of this stuff is college-funded, big-ag, mumbo-jumbo, okay? You don't need it. And, and I'm talking about good compost gang, not the stuff that's in a bag that's mostly wood. Because guess what? Wood in a bag of compost is filler. Okay, so even your organic or faux organic can have filler. Um, that's our Groucho Marx word, filler. You know, so you don't need that. Okay, and lastly, as I said, living soil will be balanced okay by a good compost the ph will be balanced so you don't need to worry about it there are some old school books that get it right when it comes to fertilizing in quotes your roses 
One of my favorite books on roses, and every one of you guys should get this book, is called The Ultimate Rose Book. It's huge. It weighs about 400 pounds, and it's by this guy from, from Australia. He's a rosarian named Sterling McAvoy. And it's published, uh, it was published back in 1993 by Harry N. Abrams, Inc., out of New York. In his chapter on the cultivation uh, of roses, Mr. McAvoy, he writes, whether the soil is acid or alkaline is a moot point. Most books recommend slightly acid, but I should dispute that. I, meaning Sterling McAvoy, the author. He goes on to say that whatever your soil, prepare it generously. As one old rose grower puts it, the rose prefers a rich diet to cuisine mincer. Cultivate the bed deeply, incorporating as much old manure and compost as you can, and then let it settle for several weeks before you plant. By the way, mincer means thin, slender, svelte in French. Aha, Francais. So the old rose grower was saying don't skimp on the organic matter and forget the fertilizer. I agree. I concur 100%. As I told you guys earlier, go half an inch to an inch on your initial go-round when you're planting your roses, then taper down to an eighth of an inch, maximum a quarter of an inch the following spring and fall. And then feel free to do what I do. Take out a cup of your favorite real organic coffee. I prefer pour-overs out into the garden and then lightly sprinkle compost anywhere and everywhere. Then water it in with your shower head style watering wand. One last uh, bit from the Mass of Rose book. He talks about mulching. And this is another area where I, you know, I, I have a lot of different opinions on mulching than some other people. I use leaf mulch. He recommends mulching the beds with any sort of organic matter that is available. Compost, rotted manure, straw, shredded bark, and Oh, newspaper. You know, he goes on to say this, which I do agree with. Do not use sawdust because it consumes nitrogen and it sets uh, like cement once it dries out. But, you know, just like Mr. McAvoy disputed the facts uh, on the acidic and alkaline soil, I have to say compost is not a mulch. Shredded bark takes a lot of biological energy out of the soil to break it down. And as far as newspaper goes as a mulch, Forget about it. So what I will say about his book is that he nails overall rose care, and he also nails all the different types of roses out there. It is a beautiful book that you can spend hours with. So he does have a nice little piece on disease and pests, which is excellent considering the book is uh, from 1993. And speaking of bugs and pests and disease, here's what you should know, going back to the organic rose care piece of this whole thing, and now it's me talking and not some book. Use compost tea on your powdery mildew and rust. Spray your roses anytime you see them appearing on the scene. It will work on black spot, but you got to catch that early, very early. You will spray your rose canes from the top to the bottom, and you will also spray the tops and undersides of your leaves. And don't worry about the buds and the blooms. They'll be okay. Plus, you want to drench your roses once a month throughout the season from leaf out to the end of the growing season, which is usually sometimes around Halloween or just before Thanksgiving, depending on where you live. Now, regarding pests, I want you to put nematodes in your soil in the spring just before the new tender leaf growth starts to explode. 
Steiner Nema Feltier and Steiner Nema Carbocapacet are the two nematodes that you'll want to use to go after the aphids at the soil level. They hunt and kill aphids, fungus gnats, white fly, and fly larvae. They even go after some of the um, different caterpillar larvae. Sounds good, right? So, so do that. That's taking care of pests at the soil level. The last tip I'm going to give you on real organic rose care is that you can use good old Dr. Bronner's peppermint soap as a deterrent to pests. They hate it. Use one teaspoon to five gallons of water and spray it in the morning by 9 a.m. By the way, you want to do that also with your compost tea sprays as well by 9 a.m. And remember, the oil in Dr. Bronner's is very concentrated, so use only one teaspoon. Okay, capiche? And that's it. So, get out there in Rose Garden. We've traveled the world today from Verona to Paris, Sydney to Southern California. Now, back to me, just south of Portlandia. It's spring in America. It's fall in Australia. But that doesn't mean you can't take the tips we've given you today and use them in reverse or by flipping them forward. Remember, health is health and health is wealth. So stay healthy and garden with gusto, my friends. Until next week, I bid you all adieu. That concludes this episode of the Healthy Garden Podcast. Please post your questions on the Healthy Garden Podcast pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week to learn more about how you can free yourself from the chemical and synthetic trap that's been set to keep you from growing a true, organic, and healthy garden. Until then, happy and healthy gardening.